You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book, Auction Ready, How to Buy Property Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website, as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started... Everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. Build to rent. What is it? Is it a solution to housing affordability? Is it a way for institutions to invest in residential property? Is it just a new fancy name for boarding houses? And if this is a sector that is poised to grow in Australia, who should champion it? Should it be government or private enterprise? What are the hurdles? Who stands to benefit the most if the build-to-rent sector is allowed to flourish? There are many overseas markets where this is an established model. Can we look to these as examples of how this sector of the property market can develop here in Australia? In this episode, we pick the brains of Adam Hurst, Mervac Group's GM of Build to Rent. Mervac is one developer who has decided to participate in this market and is currently constructing Australia's first mass-scale Build to Rent project, the Indigo Pavilions, at Sydney Olympic Park. Thank you, Adam. We're keen to learn more from you about what this is all about. Thanks for having me. No worries. Pleasure, mate. Thanks for coming in. I mean, the Build to Rent... Uh idea just makes a lot of sense, right? You know, we've got a lot of people that, you know, unable to buy or looking to buy or cannot afford to buy, let's say, and they need somewhere to live. So they need to, potentially could be part of the rental market for a long period of time, but there's not many options for them. So build to rent makes a lot of sense. Can you explain exactly where the model kind of is working around the world and exactly what it is? Yeah, sure. I mean, from a Mervac perspective, when we started to look in this space three and a half, four years ago, what we realised, which you correctly pointed out, was the average age of our purchaser of our apartment product was getting older and older. So getting up to the 40 years at 40 years old, and because mm-hmm. of that, we were missing out on a big customer segment um, of the market. So we went over and looked at the UK, the US, Japan, and all of these markets have flourishing build-to-rent uh, markets. The US uh, is definitely you know, held up as the most mature. It's been around for 50 years. It's a really large part of the, the market over there. Mm-hmm. Um, and really interesting to have a look at that. But where we got a, uh, where we found it really interesting is when we looked at the UK market. Because mm-hmm. the UK market had a lot of similar reasons that people said built to rent would never work in Australia, whether it's low yields on residential, cultural bias towards home ownership, yep. fav- favourable tax treatment for private investors, all that existed. But the sector has gone from non-existent to 140,000 units under construction in about eight years' time. Wow. So looking at that market and then looking at what the actual outcomes are for both customers and as an investment product uh, gave us a lot of excitement about what it could be in Australia and what we could what we could pull, pull together over here. This is very interesting, actually. Firstly, that your average for buyer age mm. is 40. Is that because of the type of product that Mervac builds? So you're not sort of building the real cheap entry-level stuff? Would that be fair to say? Yeah, well, Mervac does develop, you know, higher-end apartments, mm. definitely. Um, but you see, you've seen the average age of first home buyers creep up as mm. well yeah. um, over the past 10, 20 years. So it's, it's a phenomenon across the entire market, yeah. um, to be honest. Mm. But is your um, average age much higher than other, say, developers? Not sure. Not sure. Yeah, okay. don't don't have the de- the detail mm. on that. Yep. So I guess there's there's lots of different ways you could have looked at making sure you get a different age demographic or, or get a different part of the market. So this is your way of actually getting them into rent or building stock for people to rent long term. What's the ownership structure likely to be of these buildings? Yep. So typically, globally, what you see is these build-to-rent buildings or multifamily I might use as well because that's what it's called in the US. Yeah. Why yep. multifamily? 
It's just the name that the US has u- has used for the sector since it existed. So it doesn't necessarily mean that that grandparents, parents, and kids are. Okay. No, there's no there's no wow. connotation. I get that question a lot. It's yeah. just that's what they've called it. Mm. Mm. Um, what you see over there is it's really a really attractive asset class for superannuation funds, pension funds, because of the long-term stable cash flows that actually come out of the, out of the asset class. Mm-hmm. A lot of the reason people invest in real estate anyway. Um, and the capital growth, you yeah. know, in, in so, you know, if you're going to, you know, 10-storey apartment block in Manhattan, uh, I'm sure that's gone up a lot in capital value as well as yield for the investor. Yeah, but what's it, you, you see this subtle shift. Well, not really subtle. You see this shift in when you're looking at a build-to-rent sense because these investors, superannuation funds, pension funds, they've got constant inflows coming in from their members. Yep. And what they're really looking for is a stable income mm. that they can offset liabilities with. So they're not actually so much focused on the capital growth side of things. What they're focused on is repeatable defendable income over the long term Mm. and build to rent has proven to provide that particularly during the gfc in the us where you know traditional um australian investment asset classes for real estate you know retail industrial office the vacancy dropped significantly rents dropped significantly but what you saw in the gfc in the us is what if you think it through what played out was in the run-up to it economic growth was going really well Debt was available, house prices were increasing, people couldn't afford to buy, so they rented. Yeah. Then you got into the GFC, people lost their jobs, couldn't afford to buy, and they rented. So yeah. all of a sudden you had this really stable, stable um, income stream, which is great for, you know, long-term pension funds. And I guess the people renting long-term who are attracted to the build-to-rent model, they're not thinking about the short-term market anyway. They're more attracted to short-term letting, you know, one- or two-year leases rather than I guess a bill to rent is going to be a lot longer lease. Is that what you're expecting? It's an interesting one. So, again, I keep referring to the US and the UK because the sector doesn't exist here yet. Yeah. But in the US, the average lease length is 15 months. All right. So, which surprises people when I tell them that. And But when you think it through, what happens with build to rent is because of the change in the owner of the investment property, all of a sudden the owner has a time horizon that's much more aligned with the tenant within it. Mm. So they're not going to, you know, sell because they've met retirement or sell or, or want their kids to move in or any other of these reasons that mm. people might get moved out of a rental property. So all of a sudden w- what the institutional owner wants is constant cash flow. And because of that, they're actually incentivized for the tenant to stay and they want the tenant to stay because the mm. one thing you don't want is downtime vacancy. and yeah. vacancy. Mm. Because of that, it actually becomes more favourable for the tenant to have a shorter-term lease because they know they can renew regardless, mm. which, oh, so is, which, is, which is interesting. So, uh, so the 15 so months, is that the lease, average lease term or is that the average period of tenure? Lease term. Right. So what's so the average tenure. period of tenure? It's it's hard to get too clear, early. clear facts on it and it really varies depending on the market. Right. So, you know, some markets will have 50% turnover every year. Some markets will have 20% turnover every year. It's, it's very difficult to tell. So it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's a lot of talk about tenants want, per, you know, the, that security and permanency of, of residents. But I guess what you're saying is that they don't fear that they're going to be booted out so that they don't need, they don't feel the need to sign a longer lease. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And it's interesting. A lot of our customer research we did in Australia when we were going into this space actually came back with a very similar feedback that what people want is security, mm. but they want flexibility, which is contradictory in, in, <laughs> in really. Mm. Security <laughs> while they want security. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah but, but they also want that flexibility. Yeah. Um, so, But will you offer, for example, five years or 10 years or 15-year leases? Yeah, we'll be offering longer-term leases. Um, and they what won't will be, want it. And what will be interesting, well, <laughs> that, that's, that, that's what's going to be really interesting. We'll see what the customer yeah. demand is. Well, it's Cash 22. I think, you know, there will be a part of the market that wants that one or two years, but then there will be a part that, and build to rent really, that market's already solved. Like if you want a one or two year lease, there's an abundance of apartment options out there. I mean, that's why rents are going backwards. That's who knows going to live in all these new apartments out there. It's not, that's not, there's not a problem for that. Where the problem is, is if you have to rent for 10, 15 years and you haven't got any option out there right now where you can sign a lease for that long because no one wants to give you a lease that long. So build to rent really should be favouring those type of people because that's the real problem rather than 
people just looking for a one or two year lease? I would say I would I would agree on the lease term point, but yeah. I would say there are still um, significant issues that come up with the existing rental market in terms of, you know, yes, you can have a one or two year lease, but you don't know what your rental increase is going to be. That's mm-hmm. right. You don't know um, when you, if you're going to be able to renew, you might not be able to have pets. Um, if you have a maintenance issue, it mm. might take you three weeks to get fixed. Mm. Um, there's not appropriate amenities designed within the building. A lot of that stuff we will be able to provide in build to rent, which will still be attractive to someone that might just want a one or two year lease. Mm. But then we can also offer that longer term option if that is what someone wants. But I think it comes back down to as well as the why would they want a 10 year lease? It's because they want security. If they're offered security without that, then they yeah. probably take it without, I imagine. But I'm interested too, the cost of building these, are they cheaper or more expensive when you're not selling them to individual consumers? Yes, yeah, so it's interesting. What you'll see is what we've seen is there's savings in some areas and more costs in other areas. So if you take finishes is a good example. Mm. Um, because we're owning these for the long term, we'll make different decisions around um, what products we'll use because we can take a 10 or 15-year view on costs of repair and maintenance. Mm. So a good example at Indigo at Sydney Olympic Park is traditionally what we would do is we would carpet all living areas. But what we've done there is we've put tiling in all the living areas, um, which is more expensive. Yeah, but where's better? If you and if you crack mm. one tile, we can just replace one tile. Versus every time a tenant turns out moves out, we have to remove the entire all the carpet. Mm. Plus, a tenant can put down a rug if they want to, um, and, and personalise it themselves. Yes, um, but you can't take away carpet. Mm. But you can hose out a tile department. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I think another good one is the inclusion of white goods. So because we don't want yep. damage of people moving in and mm. out, we include fridges, washing machines, dryers, microwaves. That's all included within the building, within the asset. But that's obviously more expensive yep. um, than what we traditionally do in, in, on, in a build-to-sell site. It's a no-brainer, that one, though, isn't it? It does make me laugh when you, you know, in apartment blocks – and then you've got the lift, which is for the moving stuff, and then that's all you've got to put all your padding up because people are moving in and out. And then because there's 100 or 200 people in the apartment block, there's always someone moving, <laughs> yeah. and there's a fridge going up, and then there's a, you know, why can't these things just be fixed in there? Like why don't you just keep the same fridge and, yeah. you know, sell it with the fridge? But, you know, it's just not the way we do it here. No, no, <laughs> no. It's, it's it's an interesting change. And that's that, that's that change from a development standpoint, from a point-in-time feasibility to a long-term cash flow. It's kind of commercialising it in a way. It's the way we'd look at building our office buildings anyway. And it- yeah, because, of course, if you've got, I know that commercial builder is more concerned about the quality long term because you've only got one buyer. You know, it's a bit the same, isn't it, really? You've got either one buyer or would Mervac plan to hold any of these? Is that like a part of the business model for, for Mervac? Yeah, so the business model for Mervac um, is to hold 50% of the buildings that we build right? Um, and then look to bring in institutional partners ah. um, for the other 50%. Yeah. So you're not selling an entire building to someone? No. Right. No. And so there's a motivation that's going to go back to the build quality debate really, isn't it? That's that's definitely in the developer's interests to make sure that that building is not going to sink into the ground. Yeah. And I would say from a Mervac perspective, we've for 47 years been very focused on yep. quality of our mm. apartments. Um, we're obviously fully integrated Build a developer. Yeah. Um, so that's something that we we do in all parts of our business. Um, but yes, very very much so. Um, if you're looking at it from a, a a government lens with everything that's going on at the mm. moment. Yep. As a build to rent developer owner operator, that's all our risk. Mm. We're taking all that on. Um, so it's an interest. Again, it's a bit of a shift there. Yeah, I mean, in theory, all builders should be aligned to their buyers because they <laughs> want a reputation that they yep. want to maintain mm. and grow, and they want to have uh, repeat buyers and have buildings and ha- have a name that people go, I want to buy a Mervac apartment. Unfortunately, though, I think a lot of the building industry has potentially maybe focused on short-term outcomes of let's just get things mm. done Let's and haven't really put their reputation as, you know, maybe they can, they don't really care as much as, say, Mervac, who have kind of had all that kind of years. Do you think that's been one of the big problems in the building industry, why you've started to see this great builders, great products versus products that are having problems and trust starting to grow. Yeah, I mean, I can't talk on behalf of other builders, but yep. for Mervac, we've been here for 47 years. We plan on being here for 147 more. And the only way you do only that... Only 147. <laughs> <laughs> and the only way you do that 
is by looking after your customers, whether yeah. that's build to sell apartments, whether that's house and land packages we do, whether that's build to rent, whether that's office buildings, retail shopping centres, industrial sheds. Mm. Look after the customers. We'll be there for, for the long term. I know, I know we're leaving the build to rent conversation just for a minute and we will go back there. But I am interested because of this, you know, because of the disasters that we've we've been hearing about finally, and it's been looming for a long time, let's face it, is has it been a market flight to quality? Um, because, you know, obviously the brand is going to be certainly give confidence to buyers mm. um, now. Have you have you noticed there's been a change? Oh, I don't know. I mean, you're not in that sec- sector of the business. I understand yeah. that. But in in Internally, has there been conversation around the, the different type of conversations you might be having with buyers, the different type of buyers you might be talking to? Yeah, I think we very we, we expect as the market, particularly the off-the-plan sale market, hopefully returns yep. uh, next year and the year after, that there'll be more scrutiny from buyers on that actual build quality and track record. Mm. And we expect that will be positive for groups like ourselves that have that track record. Um, but to date... You still haven't seen that off the plan market really start to come back. Mm. Um, so it'll be interesting to see next year and the year after. Yeah, because probably the conversations are just starting to happen that people are thinking, oh, I can't afford to buy a house now or I can't get into the market. They get pushed out of that. Then they start looking at other options like off the plan. Yeah. And so maybe it's you're right in a couple of years' time, they'll start entering that space. And maybe investors will be back as well because investors aren't back yet anyway. Yeah. And then they'll start asking. So it's a real opportunity for groups like yourself to display or articulate all your buildings you've done, where the building problems have been, yep. why there've been problems there. Yeah, and the systems and processes that we go through on every single element of a building to make sure that that quality's there, mm. because that's how you, you get it. It's, it's it's detail, it's process, and it's repeating that over yeah. and over um, through the entire build process. Boring, isn't it? But so necessary. necessary. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and I guess as a business, are you seeing a bit of a pivot in saying, well, we know that that market's off the ball right now. We need to still be busy. We need to still keep our best staff. We need to keep our builders out there. Are you seeing build to rent to take a 5% or 10% of your business? Or are you seeing that build to rent is something that Mervac's going full steam ahead to to make it a big part of the business? Yeah. So build to rent for Mervac is... 100% 100% additive. It's not a we're taking capacity from a build to sell okay. side or a build to rent. It is, it, is a, it is a new business area that we're going into. Right. There is significant benefits if we can get this sector going for through cycle capability because the demand for rental product is far more stable than the demand for off the plan apartments. So there is definitely that, that ability to flex um, yep. through cycle. Um, but from a Given we're you know we're we're a bit of a different beast in terms of residential property developers because yep. we also have our listed we're a listed company and we have a trust mm. and that trust is looking for stable net operating income yeah, okay. and capital growth over time. So what Build to Rent allows us to do is to take a really well proven residential development capability and turn that into a stable income stream mm. for our trust as well. Yeah, um, which is. Very interesting, and and how a lot of the US companies do it. They're they're listed, which then, um, you know, from a buyer's perspective, gives you another way of investing in real estate because you can invest in a diversified portfolio of listed build to rent product rather than a single yeah. property. Is that how you're going to link the super funds into investing in this space? Is to invest in the Mervat Trust rather than doing their own projects like. For example, CBUS do their own projects, yep. uh, CBUS property, but it's kind of CBUS kind of doing, really, they're all kind of the super funds doing the project, right? So yep. do you see the super funds are going to come to Mervac and then invest in your trust, which you, you will then invest in build to rent Yeah, I, th- I think, interestingly, what you've seen is a number of the superannuation funds are already investing in build to rent in the UK yep. and in the US. And Greystone and things uh, like Greystar. that. Yeah, yep. Greystar. Yeah, Greystone. Yeah, yep. so... Um, they, they, they understand the product now and they understand the cash flows. I think what they're really waiting to see is the proof of concept in Australia, um, which there's obviously our initial building finishing next year. Um, there's one building in Perth that's just finished um, by a US group and there's a couple more under construction. Once you get that proof of concept... Um, it's an expensive thing, exercise, isn't it? <laughs> to prove a concept. It is, yeah. it is, it is. But isn't um, student accommodation a proof of concept? 
Yeah, student accommodation yeah. is a form of build to rent, yeah, right? Exactly. Like it, it, it's just a different mm. product type and a different demographic you're targeting. Mm. Or aged care homes. Yep. Yeah. Or, you know, a lot of what you'll see in the US and the UK now is retirement living as a lease for lease product. Mm. Yep. And in a high rise building with amenity, it's basically just build to rent with an age restriction. Um, they're all part of, you know, this term that a lot of the institutional investors are using, you know, the living sectors. And a lot of them are starting to look at, I want the entire um, value chain of that. So I want yep. student, maybe some co-living, build mm. to rent, build to sell, house and land packages, retirement, aged care. And because unlike retail or unlike office, which has, you know, ability to be um, disrupted, as we've seen with, you know, online shopping mm. and the like, mm. everyone always needs a roof over their Where head. They live, yeah. It's and do you think the crossover between yourselves and co-living, like, are you like almost the same or are you different? So I, I have a, it's interesting co-living. You put five people who are somewhat involved in this area and ask them what <laughs> co-living is and they'll tell you a different thing. Mm. Um, when I say co-living, what I kind of comes to my mind is smaller micro apartments with a really um, great amenity offering. Yep. Um, and then obviously a and shared a, living, and yeah. But then a technology overlay that that drives community engagement. Yep. Now, from what we're doing from a build to rent perspective, that technology and community overlay and service is there. The additional amenity offering is there, but we're providing traditionally sized apartments and traditional mix of apartments because we want a diverse mm -hmm. community. Um, so and people are we'll, kicking. Right, you haven't got the shared kitchen. They haven't got shared. No. Like you know, entertainment areas, etc. It's yeah. more about. We all live our own lives, but Correct. we've got a, a building that we can stay in if we want. Correct. It's more traditional model. We understand that better. Yeah. Yeah. We're, and I guess there's a demographic too that you get to a point where you might couple up. You might be single and love co-living maybe, mm. and, and then you couple Correct. up and you think, oh, you know, I don't want to be sharing my kitchen anymore. Yeah, or you might move country mm. and not know anyone somewhere mm. and co-living makes yeah. sense for mm. kind of what student accommodation does in a way. Mm. Yeah. It makes sense. You can meet some people and then you might go, oh, well, let's go move into the traditional rental market. Mm. Yep. Um, yeah. And if listeners are interested in uh, hearing more about co-living, go back to episode 80 when we interviewed Ed Fearon. Fearon? Fernan. Fernan? Yeah. Oh, dear. Mm, you know. Go back to eight, episode 80, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the built to rent sector is obviously, uh, you know, lots of uh, money will probably flow there. If you, do, for example, do build a quality product, right, and everyone in that area wants to live in the build to rent, how are companies like Mervat going to say, we're not going to just increase our rents and then it just becomes a product that's, because it's a great product, right? It gives you, yep. you stay there, it's built well, et cetera which is probably better than the other stuff that's been built. How are Mervat going to potentially not just keep upping the rents, keep going for – because you've got investors who will probably want a higher yield and the only way to do that is increase your rents. So yep. it's a bit of a conflict where, you know, you build a good product, everyone wants to live there, it's tempting just to keep increasing your rents. Yeah, correct. But, again, I come back to we're trying to create a sustainable long-term business here. Mm. Now, we're not a benevolent society. We do need to make profit. <laughs> mm. But you've got to get that balancing act right of looking after your customers, rewarding loyalty and providing value in what you're offering mm. um, and then obviously keeping investors satisfied as well. And that's a balancing act that we'll be, continue to do. Mm -hmm. And um, if we get into that situation, that's a great result because that means we've delivered a great product. Yep. There's demand for it. And this is, this is a sector that can take off. And not only is that great for the build to rent sector, but it's great for the affordability of the general market mm. because like situations you've had over the past two years, when you've got all of your supply of apartments in one delivery model, it's very volatile. Mm. And you're seeing it now in Victoria particularly and, and New South Wales as well, there's a big undersupply of apartments coming. If you have a build-to-rent model sitting alongside that, this is from a government standpoint, mm. you've actually diversified your delivery of you know, your key piece of social infrastructure, which is housing, which should provide benefits for affordability generally across the market over time as well. 
So the elephant in the room is 100% for you. The reason that Chris and I do this podcast is because we passionately believe that property buyers can do it better. We really want to help all of you understand all the risks, but also the ways in which you can avoid your elephant making the decisions. But what we would love for you to do is just to share this episode and share other episodes with people around you that are going through the property process. Give us a review on iTunes. A five star, please, would be very appreciated because this is about making sure that we all benefit from the wonderful information that our guests have been sharing with us. So it's interesting you say this um, undersupply because people are probably in the mindset there's an oversupply in the short term, but then maybe in the medium term there's going to be an undersupply. What is Mervac seeing of when this is how this transition of there's still lots of cranes out there now, right? We're still building a lot, but those cranes are going to go. Yep. What's your how do you foresee it's going to play out in terms of over the next few years in terms of when we're going to start seeing rents rising, people really worrying about you know where I you know, leases and et cetera. Yeah, so 21, 22, 23, we're starting to see pretty significant undersupply if you look at most of the forecasts out there relative to population growth. Mm-hmm. Um, so we expect particularly Melbourne and Sydney, if there was a lot finishing this year, there's a bit still finishing next year. But past that, there's not been a lot of apartment projects yep. started over the last two years. Um, so we expect to see an undersupply um, coming through at that stage, um, which inevitably um, will likely lead to rent growth and yep. price growth. We'll go back <laughs> to watching queues outside of rental open houses yeah, and auctions for rentals. Yeah, so then in 2021, 22, we start having this kind of undersupply, but how, do you, how do you, how's that going to get, you know, if, if people don't want to buy new apartments because they're fearful, how, how, is it, how are we going to solve that problem, you know, in terms of, you know, not having enough stock. Yeah. Know? So, I mean, part of it, the answer in our view is build to rent yeah. because you don't need, you don't have to have a big run up of sales to get going. Mm. It's a different financing model. So you yeah. don't need to go to a bank necessarily for finance. Mm. Um, so if you can get that pipeline going, we can start straight away. And there's a number of yep. developers that are interested in doing that. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's one way. And um, obviously medium density um, and, you know, housing in general is also um, one way and we're starting to see some inquiry tick up in that in that space as well. Um, but Is that uh, like townhouses and... Correct. And my understanding, though, that the Labor government and the Liberal government both had different policies on what they were going to allow tax incentives for things like build-to-rent. Um, would the Labor's result being better for build to rent than say what happens? Look, it's hard to say what will be what would be better or worse from a from a strict tax standpoint. Um, the Labor government was looking to lower or oh, sorry, equalize the tax on build to rent for foreign investors with what they pay on office, retail and industrial. Mm. So that's fifteen percent versus thirty percent. Mm. That stayed at thirty percent, um, which is obviously dampens the appetite for foreign investors in the build-to-rent space. Mm. But in saying that, with the um, election result going liberal, you also didn't have neg- negative gearing removed and the like, which, you know, would be would, would seem to be part of the reason that the housing market may have, may have got a little bit more secure post mm-hmm. that, um, which, you know, is, is great for the economy more generally as well. So it's hard to say what would have been definitely better. Um, but, yeah, that... that Income tax piece is a big one for build to rent. The other big one is land tax. Mm. So mm. yeah, so mm. most countries where this sector exists, it's not a progressive land tax system. Yep. Um, so a good example is New South Wales. If you were to take a hundred off the plan, um, sorry, strata apartments that mm. are sold to private investors. Yep. And then you take those so same hundred apartments and make them a build to rent operator. Yep. Will pay five times the land tax bill. Yep. Um, that, wow. that, that, that that the government would have received otherwise. Yeah. Um, and why is that? Well, I think because if the land state's worth a hundred million, the development. Yep. You know they've got sixty million dollars of land. Yep. And they have to pay land tax on it. But if that was between a hundred owners. Oh, I see. And they've in the under they, the threshold, each individually under the threshold. Correct. That's why. Yeah. Because yeah. you know seventy oh, yeah. percent have one. 
investment, yes, 95% yeah, yeah. of investors have two. Or it's their own two. occupier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Correct. I yes, I so, understand. So what you need here is the state government to basically say we don't, we're going to change the rules here for these build-to-rent models where we are going to not charge them land tax because we will make money in other ways, i.e. rates, i.e. Stamp duty. Well, not stamp duty. No, that's the other um, thing. <laughs> well, what? what <laughs> well, well, I think we're starting to see why it might not be popular for governments to support Well, it's this. an interesting one, right? So what we've been saying to government is this is about an equal playing field, not incentives. Mm. So we're more than, from a build-to-rent perspective, we can pay the, the, the most land tax that you would ever get out of this building mm, yeah. if it was strata subdivided because... If we don't do that, there's not going to be any sector, so there's no lost revenue yeah, anyway. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So it's all, add, it's, anyway. it's all additive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, makes sense. On, yeah. on the land tax side, yeah. the stamp duty side's another interesting one where, yes, you, the stamp duty equation changes but not necessarily negatively. Mm. It just prolongs it. So these buildings will trade just like office buildings do on cap rates between institutional investors, and when that happens state government will get stamp duty on the entire building in one go rather than right. individual apartments. Mm. So, Swings and roundabouts. Yeah, so it's, 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 we've had a lot of f- philosophical discussions about this. But I mean, it's, it's also good for the area, right? Like, and so, you know, it's bringing new jobs, it's creating more community, it's solving a society problem where we need this. So... You know, Correct. The, the government's got to be having that mindset as well as I want to make money today for the budget. Correct. There's also there's the economic activity yeah. argument, the jobs, obviously supply, sustainability, and you know construction happening. Construction happening. Mm. Gross cost of living is an interesting one. So our co-investor in our first asset at uh, City Olympic Park is the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, and they came in for two reasons. One was their view is this sector will. Um, take off in Australia like it has everywhere else in the world mm-hmm. and obviously want to push um, those that are first movers to have really well-designed, sustainable buildings that are lowering greenhouse gas emissions so that everyone else that comes into the sector does similar mm. things. But more interestingly, That's, yeah. more interestingly, what comes, what flows from that is, and we'll be able to prove this in, in a year or two, is that because of that design change, the utility bills that actually within these buildings for the tenants will actually be significantly lower yep. um, than your traditional building because of that those mm. that those designs up front. Um, so there's all sorts of, you know, positive benefits out of this sector. The sustainability thing is interesting. Are you, uh, let's say, flipping from the build to rent to the traditional off the plan or house and land or medium density? Yeah. Are Mervac noticing a, a massive shift in terms of we're going all out in sustainability that sort of movement or because that's what the consumers want or is it still not really happening um, where you're kind of saying, well, we can put some solar panels in or we can maybe insulate <laughs> yeah. it. We don't need to go sustainable design, sustainable materials, blah, blah, blah. I'd say we're, we're at a point where sustainability is talked about a lot more from the customer standpoint, mm. but they still don't want to pay for it. Yeah. Mm. So they'll they'll they'll, they'll, ha- they'll if it's being built and doesn't cost anything, then definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Again, what will be what will be interesting with build to rent is we're hoping we'll be able to prove the benefit because we'll be owning these and be able to show you know utility savings and the, and the benefits that can come out of it. Yeah. Then all of a sudden you can make link that that link between more sustainable and a financial outcome. Yep. But yeah. It's funny that we do. <laughs> humans are like that though, aren't we? We we care about the world and everything like that. But then if it's choosing cheaper option versus more expensive option that's better for the world, you know, unfortunately most humans go down the cheaper option. And Correct. So yeah. it's not till you make that, you know, actual, you know, accounting equation, you know, better. It's better to buy an electric car because you will actually in the next five years be much better off. But even People then, won't do it. it's a delayed thing, isn't it? I mean, we we interviewed Cecile Weldon back yeah. in episode 62 and from Livability and mm. She was positing that, well, you know, tenants in particular are demanding um, more sustainable buildings because their rent bill, their, sorry, their um, electricity bills are so high and they will actually move um, because of it. 
um, and they're talking about rating buildings and rating apartments, for instance, for the actual bill costs and, and the living costs. And and I'm, I'm still a little cynical that it's push, is it push or pull, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it is is that whole idea about what will people pay for in the mm. short term versus what they want in the long term. But that, that also, or, or I should say the benefits in the long term. So I was wondering, is there a part of this model, could it be that you've got a building that part of it gets sold to you know, individuals who want to either invest or live there and part of it is build to rent and part of it's commercial. Is that sort of part of that multifaceted building that is that part of this whole thing? Yeah, I mean, mixed use in general is obviously growing. People want to live, eat, play in the work in the exact same mm. area. Um, and for Mervac, we can obviously play in all those spaces. So it's a logical area that we, we want to do this in. Um Indigo is a good example. Um, Indigo is actually um, 700 apartments total, um, but 380 are built to sell and 315 uh, built to rent. Um, so there we've been able to you know, provide op- op- opportunity for mm. different types um, of tenure, which is great. And I guess watching how that happens as a building ages or as a complex ages will be interesting because I know there's certain complexes where you find people, tenants will trade up, build, you know, owner-occupiers will trade up within the buildings, you know, there, there's communities that develop and and I know that some developers like to think that they can actually orchestrate and help create that community but in, yeah. in, in a way it's the people and it's the fl- that what takes a role, you know, takes a, water, yeah. a, um, uh, a life of its own, doesn't it? Yeah, I just I, I just got back from the, the US where we're looking at a whole bunch of Built to rent, um, you know, assets and mixed use, and saw this really interesting one at Essex Crossing in New York, which is very similar to what you're talking about. It was it's about six or seven buildings um, over the top of an existing marketplace that they basically oh, yep. gentrified. Um, got great food vendors and local food vendors in there. You then got a built to sell building um, with seventy apartments, fourteen of them affordable. You then got a build-to-rent building on top of the markets, which is 30% affordable, 70% market. You then got an office building with condo on top. You then got an age-restricted build-to-rent building for over 55s. And then you had a bit of co-living with another condo on top. Yeah. And just watching how that can actually work as a community and an mm. offering, it's fascinating to see what you can do once you've got that diversity of offering. Yeah. Which is a problem we created where we haven't, been that smart in building multifaceted sort type of stock in one area, i.e., you know, places where there's lots of one and two bedroom apartments, mm. we pretty much only target singles or young couples. And then, you know, because there's lots of singles and young couples, older generation don't want to live near because of parties, <laughs> families don't want to be there because of parties mm. and movement. Um, and so then you end up just creating a whole segment of part of the culture. Yeah. And then it does, you know, then generally does also suit part different types of cultures as well. And so some pockets of high rises are very much dominated by one culture. And then we start stepping away from a, you know, a multicultural, multi-age society, which is probably better for, you know, I guess sometimes people's well being, I guess. Mm. Yeah, better for well being and better, you know, the whole loneliness epidemic. Yeah. You know, the more closer we live together, the more alone we are mm. is all part of that. Um, in the, a lot of the research we did, again, on build to rent, and we were talking to renters and customers about what they want. A really interesting one that came up was we were talking to, you know, young professionals, young families. They're saying, look, what I'd really love is. You know, I've got two young kids. On a Friday, it'd be great if I could go out with my wife and have dinner for two hours. But, you know, the the hassle of I've got to pay a babysitter for four hours, you know, the cost of all that added yep. up, it's just too hard. We were then talking to, you know, downsizers um, who are out of the workforce going, we'd really love a way to make some cash on the side, but we don't want to go back into the traditional workforce. It's got us thinking we're trying to work out how to – We don't. you can't force community, right? It needs to be yeah. It needs to be organic. Mm. But how can we, through our a res, the resident application that we're building, kind of enable that so that those connections get made? Yep. Because in an apartment building of 315 apartments, there's 700 people. Mm. Those type of relationships should be able to be fostered. And maybe it's, you know, where you want to play tennis. Maybe it's you want yep. someone to go to the gym with. This should be a way to really help drive that. 
It well, is interesting because it, <laughs> it, it's the building itself and the facilities and everything don't necessarily lend it. It's, it needs human interaction in a way to create it, doesn't it? Because, Correct. you know, you go to these buildings, huge buildings, and often go, go to them and you go to the pool nobody's in there. Yeah. Nobody uses the pool yeah. or nobody yeah. uses the gym and then you go to other buildings where somebody's, it's packed. Yeah. And where is that word of mouth? Is it an individual that's actually gone out there and created, okay, well, we're going to do a spin spin club or whatever, you know, I mean, mm. or we're going to have a barbecue and, and or let's, you know, for all the grandparent age people out there that his kids haven't had kids yet and, be, you know, you want to go and get your, mm. your grandchild Phil and get a, get a, you know, a, a pseudo grandkitty or yeah. pseudo is not the word, but, you know, a, 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 a my, my daughter's got an extra grandmother. She's not really her grandmother, but she's been like a grandmother since she was born. Yeah. You know, it's been an amazing relationship and you can imagine those things being fostered. Yeah, correct. And that, again, is part of the build-to-rent model. So on site at Indigo, there'll be community manager whose who's role is to do your traditional, you know, correct collecting rent and all, and, and all that kind of stuff, but also to curate the community, put on community events, integrate with the surrounding businesses, you know, mm. good, good examples that you do in the US is where, you know, if there's a pizza shop, for example, we put an additional amenity in the, in the building. So there's a, generally a commercial type kitchen in a, in a common area. They bring in the local pizza shop and they do a pizza making course and you get to know some people mm-hmm. and you also get to know the local community yeah, um, and things like that. Yeah. There'll also be leasing staff and maintenance staff on site so that there's a problem with your microwave. Yep. You take a photo on your app, you go out, it'll be fixed when you get home. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that you, you do, even though we're, you know, constantly driving down this technology enabled world at the moment, mm. our view at least on this is you need the two. Yeah. Because some people want that human interaction. Some people don't. Some people just want to do everything through yeah. an app and that's fine. Yeah. But you need to be able to offer both. I think this is what the problem with the renting market has been though, is that uh, there's been a lack of community in these buildings because people aren't really investing in the building because they know they're only signing a one-year lease. They might not be there in a year or two. They're, so is their neighbour. They're not, no, they're not going to be there in a couple of years. And so the whole building isn't really investing in the building because mm. everyone knows they're not going to be there long-term because most of it are investment-owned, very few owner-occupiers, et cetera. So this is actually allowing people to you know invest in the building because they know they can stay if they want to, Yep. which is a different world to, you know, what's been built. What's your thoughts about all this other stock that were built for 20 years where you've got like a car that's kind of ageing every year, right, and the mm. new product is so much better that, and it's getting better. What? Why would people even want to live in the older, boring, you know, stock standard apartments? Won't everyone just want to move into these new buildings? And so what's going to, going to mean for the people who invested in those old buildings where the desirability of them is dropping every year because new, better quality buildings are coming out. Yeah, I mean, part of that is people don't necessarily just live in a building, they live in a location. Yeah. So there needs to be access in the area to stock where they want to live, where their family is, where their friends are. Um, And part of it is the constrained nature of supply as well. Mm. I mean, vacancy is very tight, even as it's blown out to what, percent yeah. or something in the in the in the last year. Yeah. Um, so there's simply just not enough supply coming through. Um, you know, to 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 provide that opportunity for there to be a complete shift. Shift. Yeah. It's um, going to be a gradual thing. Yeah. Over correct. years. But generally speaking, though, it's you know those newer buildings are going to rise to the top, and the stuff that you know good Murdoch buildings are going to say, for example, rise to the top within that, but because they're going to you know, still be well built, look, still got a, you know, nice design to them, et cetera. Still got a lot of owner occupiers who like that building. So they'll survive. But then you've got potentially a lot of the developers that are investing in the poor every year, like they're not going to be as desirable, right? So yeah. you've got to be, I guess, careful if you own those buildings because there's nothing <laughs> going to turn them around. True, but that's been still a problem now without build to rent to worry yeah. about. You know, but I am interested because Mervac clearly builds stock for investors as well. I mean, you'd want to have a mix of investors buying into your buildings. Is that some? Is this in some way cannibalising that part of your market? N- like why would an individual want to buy an individual apartment to invest if it's next to a building that's full of build to rents? Yeah, I think they're different. They're, they're ultimately different products, right? Mm. So. 
obviously when, you know, human nature, if you look at something new, you try and link it to something that you know. Mm. So everyone initially when build to rent starts happening, they'll compare it to traditional rental. Mm. But ultimately it's a different product. It's different design. It's different management model and probably will end up with a different customer. Mm. And you look at the US, it's been around. You mean as in a different type of tenant? Yeah. Right. And, and you look at the US and it's been around 50 years and the build to rent market is still only 12 to 13% of the entire rental market. So mm. 80, 88% of it is still mum and dad investors. So they, yeah. they, they, they exist together. They're just different housing choices in one big continuum. How do you envisage the customer or the tenant will differ? So what type of tenant typically might go for a build to rent versus for a more traditional apartment, maybe in the building next door? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to know at this stage because it's all, yeah, it's all theoretical. Mm. Um, it'll be very dependent on location as well. Yeah. Um, I want to get to that too, yeah. because what, one of the things that makes it more affordable for the investor's point of view is obviously a cheaper site, right? So cheaper sites that could be suburb or it could be within a suburb, could be a lesser or further out suburb potentially, mm. you know, a couple of stations away or, and you know, I hear a lot of people talk, a lot of our urban planners talk about this, oh, you know, families love to live above railway stations. <laughs> i We've heard a few people say it on the podcast, mm. actually, and it does make me laugh because I think, really? You know, yes, it's convenient and, yes, yeah. your commute's cut down, but, you know, it, typically it's cheaper land, you know, noisier locations and all that sort of stuff. Um, is is there in the model, Is it, it you know, how does it differ? I mean, what sort of sites are chosen for this model, do you think, versus yep. what might be chosen for the build-to-sell model? Yeah, so what we're selling is, you know, simplicity, flexibility and, you know, connectivity. Yeah. And the connectivity bit is really around that connectivity to people within the building, but also connectivity from a transport point of view. So what we're really looking for is within really close proximity to non-road-based transport, mm. um, wherever we're looking. We're looking obviously for the demographic backdrop that is already high rental, um, good income growth, solid jobs, um, Within that, within there, and generally, what we're finding is that that tends to be younger demographic yeah. areas, um, and then really from that, it comes down to where we can make it work because mm. it's still difficult to make build to rent work. Um, if you take a, a, a straight piece of land and you have a build to sell developer and a build to rent developer going after it, the build to sell developer will be able to pay more every mm. day of the week. So it is, it, it is still tough to make them stack up at the moment. Yeah. And your yields are based on what? Because, like, for instance, in a build to sell, they're going to build it, they're going to whack on their margin and sell it, right? Yep. Um, then that person buys an individual apartment, rents it out, and, you know, they might have a guaranteed year, a guaranteed uh, rent, which we do not advise to go for, people. <laughs> but, you know, and then there's whatever yield that is, right? But that's based on an inflated price because you're paying a builder's mile or developer's margin. Whereas in your situation, you're, I'm presuming you don't have the developer's margin built in there. It's a different price modelling, I would think, or cost structure. Um, so how is the yield, you know, calculated? Yeah, so we're looking at basically a yield on cost. You can put the right. So mm. we're, we're targeting um, based on what will actually cost us to build that building, land, construction costs, financing, mm. everything. Yep. What what yield can we get out of that based on rents in that area? Um, Which is obviously going to be higher than what the standalone apartment in the building next door would get. Yeah, cor mm. correct, because your cost base is different. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Except for the fact you've got that land tax and stamp duty. <laughs> yes, yeah. But Except I mean, that that business, though, yeah. they've got to also have some type of profit in there because things go wrong, right? Like, and you have cost blowouts and, yeah, you know, well, so mm. a lot of developers will, on paper it looks like it's going to be a very profitable project, but it doesn't take much for that to actually turn around and actually all your profit to go, whether, you know, wages you know, et cetera. So oh, you've got correct, to still correct. be building it for a profit. Yeah, correct. Oh, I'm not suggesting they don't. Yeah. I'm just, it's just interesting to know because one of the issues you mentioned earlier was like the, it's common in the UK is that that low yield. I mean, we do have low rental yields in this country. Yeah. So it, it, 
as because it's for a business and you've got to get income out of it and you've got to get higher than your three and a half percent that that a lot of investors are getting because they're getting the upside of capital growth to offset that whereas mm. in this case you're not looking at capital it's not a capital growth play yeah it's an income play so yeah so the the where this model really starts to work then is and the question is we're building for a yield on cost what is the cap rate that investors will pay for mm. a you know, fully let build to rent building. Yeah. Um, so we've done a lot of work looking at how cap rates um, act, act on build to rent relative to office and retail mm. globally. So we've got a, a view on where that, that will end up being. Mm. Yeah. Um, and the question is, once we build it, is is that where they, where they will be? We, we think yes. Um, well, they probably obviously. wouldn't have been a few years ago, but now that the world's in very low rates, and very stuck there. Well, that's the you know the interest rate. consensus mm. views that interest yep. rates are, and returns also based on that are also going to be subdued. And Correct. so, buying a five percent yielding apartment block that potentially should rise with wage growth or inflation, yeah, it's not a bad investment mm. in that low growth, low wage, low in, uh, interest rate world. Correct. Go back to two thousand and ten, eleven, fast moving stock markets, etc. Yep. Not interested. Mm. So Correct. maybe the world's uh, also it's going the right safer way. Safer than government yeah. bonds, is that what you're saying? And it's it's yeah, <laughs> it's also the risk adjusted nature of it. Yeah. Now that people I talked about the GFC and the performance yep. of the asset mm. class, now that investors understand how defensive it is in terms of an entire portfolio mm. allocation, mm. it makes a lot of sense to have a portion of it, you know, in a defensive asset class yep. like this. And you're completely right. The bond yields coming in rates of return requirements coming in is a lot of the reason why this sector is starting to get a lot more traction now. Mm. The key will be, which I, I think will happen now, is getting enough proof um, over the next few years that the sector works before, if they do, rates go back up again. Mm. Um, because my view is once you prove it and people understand it, then you don't need that low yep. environment to get it going because people understand it, but you do need that to get it going. Yep. Yeah, then you'll have people wanting to invest and thinking 3% yield is good. Yeah, yeah. well, that's it. So it's a race <laughs> to the bottom, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Well, in, in, in London, build-to-rent schemes on, you know, that institutions are taking out are generally 3 to 3.5% three mm. cap rates. Yeah, yeah not much. Yeah, interesting, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. The, um, going back to the Labor versus Liberal um, thing, I didn't, you know, in terms of a lot of uh, Australians thought that you know the Labor policy around stopping negative gearing, but also encouraging people to buy new to get tax advantages. A lot of people thought the developers really wanted that, um, that they were supportive of the Labor policy because it would have created more demand for new property. Do you, was that kind of Mervac's view that you know if the negative gearing did go and people could only buy new, that it was actually good for developers, or did a lot of developers think it didn't actually? It wasn't actually a good idea. Look, the, the the key for this is stability of policy, right? For any investor, whether it's a private or an institution, you need stable policy from yep. government so you know exactly what you're in for and what your returns could be. Yeah. So any uncertainty in that is not good regardless which way, which way it goes. Um, so what we're happy about is there's now clear stability of policy from mm -hmm. that standpoint. Um, and now we'll see... Um, with you know the changes on the financing market seemed seeming to unwound, whether that then flows through to yeah. measurable transaction evidence in the in the next few years. What well, was there um, forecasting? Because I imagine at that point in time that it was likely that Labor were going to win. But had Mervac done forecasting on what they what you believe that you would sell more if we went down the stopping negative gearing route, or if we kept things as they were? Was there a you know, a dis, you know, behind the scenes, was there a, a feeling that we would go either way? <laughs> no, like no. We, we 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 weren't forecasting different scenarios based on an unknown outcome. It, okay. it was just too, yeah. you know, politics is it's it's too uncertain. Well, okay. Yeah. Well, I guess changing direction in your business is a bit like turning around the Queen Mary, isn't it? I mean, it's like the election would come and go before you were able to change any direction well, that you'd already well. set in place. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. 
Please, Adam, can you give us an example of a property Dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. I do have a Dumbo for you. It's a, it's it's my own one. Um. <laughs> <laughs> we love. It. Oh, excellent, <laughs> brave man, go for it. So, about sort of been two and a half years ago. Um, then my one son, who was one and a half, and my wife heavily pregnant. We thought it would be a really good idea to buy a terrace that had three levels and a whole lot of stairs. <laughs> yep. We, we, con- we convinced ourselves that we'd be able to buy it and, you know, make it perfect for us. Um, we moved in. We were basically top of the market. <laughs> moved in, four weeks in, can't live here. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. Wow. I talk about a lot, so- <laughs> buying without regrets, and that's a very quick turnaround. And, wow. inter- and interestingly, what it led on to was a great case study in some of the inherent issues in the rental market because we're now about to move to our fourth property in two years. Wow. Um, Because we're in one that was great and we had a great managing agent, but then the owner wanted to move back in. We then moved to another one that had an issue with slugs. A slug issue? Yes. They were coming into the house. (gasps) Wow. They told us that they weren't going to fix it. We then found them all over the... um, all over the pram, and they can be very dangerous for kids. So we said, we're moving out. They said, great, we're going to take you to um, the tribunal. Oh, what? We we said, fine. (laughs) They then go. Slug plague. I've never heard of that. What was this? Can I ask? (laughs) (laughs) They then then said, okay, we won't take you there, but you've got five days to move out. And what? then we'll, so we oh, no. so we quickly found somewhere which is a great apartment, but it's not in an, because we only had five days. It's not in an area that we near our family or anything. So now we're finally moving back to an apartment that we where we want to live. Yes. No. And what <laughs> so happened to terrace? So have, you, have you rented your terrace out? Yeah. So that was yeah. a, that's a pretty good Dumbo. <gasps> so oh. the terrace though. Um, what was it about the terrace though? Obviously the young kids and um, oh, the wife was pregnant, so she didn't want to do the stairs Nesting. and things like that. No, but, but well, I mean, that's the, it was a, what was the other thing that made you think that you couldn't live here though? Like, well, is before it, it was, that, can we wind back? What it, made you think you could live there? Hmm. You had a one and a half year old and a pregnant wife. Um, there you, must have been something going on then. Yeah, you know, we were still, as Zaina, my son was only one and a half. Mm. We lived in the terrace before that for Six years, we were still living in the dream of young professional dink, yeah. dink right. world, making a decision based on that, and then it kind of hit us pretty hard when we realised. And was it the third level bit. that killed you in the terrace? Like as you having to go that, like, yeah, because you were in a terrace before. So what made it like? I assume that had stairs. Yeah, it was the stairs. It was the steepness. It was the steepness of the stairs. Look, running after one, running after downstairs. Yeah, running after uh, one, okay. running after one kid is a lot different to running after two kids. Mm. <laughs> uh, okay, yes, and you couldn't section. Well, yeah, and then it was too small of a living area downstairs. So yeah. you, yeah, okay, <laughs> right. Four weeks. Wow. It's interesting though. Like, is it that's, really? That's a great. I mean, I don't mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's How the dumb are you? Thing, though, I mean, do, but what why? a great Dumbo because mm. you we do try to talk ourselves into things and we do just gloss over, you know, what we don't know, you know, and, and we do that in our business. We often people at one stage of their lives, you know, they don't know what's coming, particularly with kids, yep. you mm. know, um, and each as the kids grow, they, it changes as well and that's fascinating, yeah. Well, that is the hardest thing, right? If you, you know, I'm going down that journey, wife's chewing a few months and, yeah. you know, it's kind of, you know, what's the property going to suit us as a people and what we want out of a property and the lifestyle, but then what's also yeah. going to suit the practicalities of having a family and maybe it's two, not one. And, um, yeah, and, and it's so hard to do that. How to my, my, see the challenges mm. of what you're going to have in a few years' Correct. time. My biggest recommendation is single-level apartments are amazing with kids. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> single-level anything. Yeah, single-level anything. Kids. Correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that whole, you know, see everything from the kitchen, you know. Correct. Visibility, they can go in and out. and yeah, On a there's... Saturday, if they wake up early, you can get them out of the cot and you can still go back and lie in bed and know they're not going to kill themselves yeah, rolling yeah. downstairs. <laughs> <laughs> a bathtub close to the kitchen. Yeah, correct. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's all those things. Oh, my God. Wow. And so... 
<laughs> interestingly enough too, because you don't buy a house or a home without having all sorts of dreams about living in it and being there and the family growing up and all the rest of it. So now you've sort of had to park that dream of your own home ownership. I mean, you own a property, but it's not the same as home ownership, is it? No. Um, and so I guess how is that itch being scratched, so to speak? Because <laughs> you must still have it. Yeah, yeah. So the itch is being scratched. I'm preparing a DA for it at the moment. Right. Um, so that we can hopefully turn it into something that we can move back into now that the kids are getting older mm. and can walk up and down stairs. Wow. So right, that's okay, the, yeah. That's the plan. Well, I imagine if it's a three-level <laughs> That's terrace, how I'm rationalising. Um, <laughs> market's obviously recovered quite a lot in the last six months. Um, so I imagine if that's in a, in a semi-inner ring location, you would have seen that while there would have been a bit of a dip in 18. Like you've it might seen, be worth what you paid. Well, it might be back to what it's, you know, have <laughs> yeah. you kind of noticed that that's been a bit of a journey with that yeah. property? you know, agents are calling a lot at the moment, but they're calling yep. with this spring selling season. It's gone pretty bonkers for existing stock. Mm. Yeah. Um, the market's potentially, you know, being a bit more forgiving because you probably bought a quality asset here and you and you were able to ride out the wave but by going and renting. But you up all your costs, like, you know, all your... your well, he hasn't lost, he hasn't sold it, so it's probably gone back to what it was worth yeah, and so it hasn't been a bad financial decision. Yes, you have four lots of removalists he's what? had to pay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thank you you for, add all that th- in there. Thank you for reminding me of that. <laughs> That's all right, you're a general manager, you know how to read a balance sheet. <laughs> Uh, Adam, thank you so much for sharing that Dumbo with us and also for your time and and information. It's quite insightful insightful in terms of the layers of this and the things to consider and the fact that uh, Mervac is, you know, one of the pioneers, or an Australian pioneer, I guess, in this area. Um, And I guess watch this space really, isn't it? Yes. I mean, at the end of the day, I think if we come back in 10 years' time, everyone will have known it build to rent and they'll know someone who lives in a build to rent. So it's just that I think we're at very early stages. So it's good to start the discussion. Yes. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Pleasure. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Let's talk about scarcity. Now, if this build to rent model takes off, what it is going to do is really going to make individual investors who continue to want to invest in individual properties, it's really going to drive a smart investor towards scarcity. And so in much more so, I guess, than, I mean, we recommend it now anyway, to be quite frank. So the reality is if you are going to be buying an investment apartment, you know, in my business, we would recommend you buy in certain areas, in certain types of buildings, et cetera, et cetera. We definitely would invest, recommend that you are looking at buying a long way away from where there is oversupply. So currently there's oversupply in terms of investor stock, right? Now, tenants like brand new. Uh, Now, these properties that are brand new don't stay brand new forever. So, of course, over time, you know, it all gets absorbed into the marketplace and whatnot. But when they're brand new buildings and when there's a constant supply of brand new buildings, then that can impact on your yield, right? And we never buy for yield, but that is an important thing to understand that, you know, if you can get better yield and good capital growth, then you want to go for that, right? So the scarcity side of things is really going to become even more important when you've got entire buildings or entire sections of buildings that are specifically built to rent and will be rented out for decades. What often happens in a building now, if it's not so much investor stock, but even, I guess, with investor stock, ultimately you get some resales. Investors get to a point where they're not getting the returns that they want. Life gets in the way. They decide they need to sell to free up some cash, whatever it is. As the buildings, as apartments within a new building over the decades, they start to get resold. And even if they have been predominantly sold to investors, you will start to see owner-occupiers move into buildings and they start to develop a flavour and a sort of character and a community of their own. There's no real design behind this. Some of them are good, some of them not so good. So when you've got a build-to-rent building, it's, it's never going to go through that metamorphosis. And so when you're buying an investment property, you want to be very careful that you're not going to be buying anywhere near where you're going to have a constant supply of rental property to compete with yours when you go to rent it out. Now, you want that scarcity for both the capital growth and the yield. And so that's one of the reasons why I love, for argument's sake, one example is some Art Deco apartments. Well, they're not being built anymore. You know, new apartments don't look like Art Deco apartments. They're they're very small blocks. They've got character. They've got charm. And the 
the location in which they are uh, offers certain amenity as well. So, I mean, that's just one example of that's the sort of property that will always retain scarcity for both owner occupiers and tenants over time. You'll get a certain type of tenant because the inference in this conversation with Adam was around that there's a potentially a demographic change or difference between those that will go and seek out uh, living in a build-to-rent type building versus those who would seek to live in other types of apartments and other locations. So as that takes shape, because as he said, we don't really know how that's going to take shape, but as that takes shape, you know, the inference being, I think, higher income tenants uh, may not go down that path. So I think for looking at investment now, if you're buying for now, you are going to be thinking, we hope you're thinking about 10 years in the future. Well, in 10 years time, build to rent could be very, very prolific in the cities. So we want to be buying now with a view to avoiding the competition that those sorts of buildings can offer or potentially offer in the future. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.